Daniel chapter 5 is where we find ourselves again this morning. We're going to wrap this chapter up, look at a few things uh, in relation to that. And I'll just remind you that uh, last week as we kind of introduced this, uh, we looked at some of those subtle contexts, some of those things that are there in the texts uh, in Daniel, but uh, you kind of have to be a student and not just gloss over them. Uh, we noted that Dan, uh, chapter 5 is out of order chronologically, um, and that lends to the understanding that Daniel had in some respects of, of what was being written on the wall. And uh, just for background, here's Belshazzar. Uh, he's making this feast uh, for all of his, for thousands of his lords. And during the feast, he commands that all the vessels of gold and silver taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought out so that they might drink their wine from them. And as they do, they celebrate and they praise and worship the false gods of silver and gold and stone and all of those things. And in the midst of all that, this hand shows up and writes on the plaster there on the wall a message. And nobody can decipher it. The, the wise men and the astrologers and the Chaldeans can't decipher what it says. And we kind of pick up the story there uh, in verse 10. So let's read. I want to read verses 10 and 11. It says, Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Now just note that there's really no certainty about who this queen is. We don't know uh, exactly who she is. Um, there are some theories. Uh, but one thing is certain that she is familiar with Daniel. And so that it's very likely uh, she's not Belshazzar's wife. She's either his mother or possibly Nebuchadnezzar's widow, one of the two. Uh, knowing that uh, Belshazzar's uh, mother was daughter of Nebuchadnezzar more than likely, um, she would have been familiar in either of those circumstances. She was familiar enough, in fact, that she quotes Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we read in uh, Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, but at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my gods, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him, I told the dream, saying, she quotes him and said, listen, we found in him wisdom like unto that of the gods. So she's very familiar. We don't know who she is exactly. Um, we have some ideas and some theories and things like that, uh, mostly derived from extra biblical sources. But the certainty is that she's familiar with Daniel. She's familiar with the, the calling and the gifts that God has given him and the result and the way that those callings and gifts have been used in Babylon by God. Now, in verse 11, 
It talks about the, the wisdom that he has being substantial, being on par with that of the gods, uh, all the, the pagan deities. And, and I want to make two points. Number one, the wisdom that Daniel exhibits is supernatural. I mean, let's just get that right out there. And we know that all the way from chapter one, verse 10, when Daniel and uh, his three friends were brought before Nebuchadnezzar finally after their uh, eating of the vegetables and all of those things, it says that they were found to be 10 times wiser than any of the other people in that circumstance. They, they were significantly sharper than the average tool in the shed. And that was understood and it was recognized. So this wisdom that Daniel has is supernatural. It's something that God has given him. Even And the interpretation of dreams and visions is specifically noted as something that Daniel has been gifted by God to uh, deal with, to do those things. So we just have to realize that first and foremost. But he also learned and his wisdom grew in study and communion with God. It wasn't just limited to this supernatural injection, if you will, of wisdom. He increased in wisdom as he spent time in the Word and as he communed with God. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. It says, in the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Okay, so here's Daniel, and he's engaged in study. I discovered in the books. I understood from my study. And really, if we go on and we read the whole chapter, this is where he begins to confess the sins of the nation of Israel on their behalf. He is communing with God. You consider that it was known that Daniel was praying regularly. And when we get to uh, the, the next chapter and we look at the, the Daniel in the, in the lion's den, that's how they caught him. He was regularly spending time with God. And that becomes a key thing because you and I may not have gotten the supernatural injection of wisdom. But wisdom is there nonetheless. And in fact, wisdom should be a pursuit. I want to look at it at wisdom for just a moment. Wisdom from God and having that wisdom that is recognizable to the world around us from being somewhere other than ourselves. Not just what I think about it, not just my opinion, but this is obviously something above and beyond. Wisdom, which is the application of knowledge. Here is knowledge departed. Uh, departed, excuse me, uh, imparted to us in the Word of God. And we understand that this is true knowledge, this is real knowledge, this is substantial knowledge. And we take the understanding of that and we put it into practice. We begin to apply it to the circumstances around us. And it's to be sought after. It's something that we as believers should pursue Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2, if you will. Proverbs chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 7. Now, in this chapter, we find wisdom described. Okay. My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide 
my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thy heart unto understanding. Okay, so we're going to apply our heart, or excuse me, incline our ear to wisdom. We're going to look, listen for it and apply our heart to understanding. That means that when we see the things around us, when we hear those things around us, we take the time to know what it means and understand it. It goes beyond just empty knowledge. There's an interesting thing that people have studied. It's, it's called the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. And all it means is this. If you take three people, and maybe I've talked about this before, but you take three people, you take one person who maybe has read one article about a particular topic. And then you have somebody who is a student. They're in process of becoming an expert, right? They're learning, they're studying, they're actively engaged. Obviously, they know more than the first guy who's read one article. And then you have the expert, the guy over here who has studied it. He's literally written the book on it. He's the expert. And you put all three of them together and you have an open discussion about the topic. The guy over here who's read the one article, basically what it amounts to is he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And so he's pretty confident in what he talks about and what he says. And he can tell you all the things that he read in this article. The second guy, the student who's put some time in, he knows what he doesn't know. He knows more than this guy, but because he knows that there is a limitation to his knowledge and to his understanding of that thing, he's usually far more quiet and far less confident than the guy who's only read one article. And then you have the expert, and he's, he, ultimately he has nothing to prove. He is the expert. I wrote the book. And so he usually remains quiet. And what ultimately happens is that the audience almost always perceives that the guy who knows the least knows the most. We want to make sure that as we engage in this, as we are taking the knowledge in, we're inclining ourselves to wisdom, that we're putting forth the effort to be the student and ultimately become the expert. We want to know what it says, but we don't want to stop there. The expert should be the one that we listen to. He should be the one that can clearly articulate it to whatever audience may be in participation. And so we want to engage ourselves, not only in the study and the understanding of it, but in the ability and the practice of speaking it. We're going to come back to that point in just a moment here. Verse 4, Proverbs 2, 4. If thou seekest her as silver and search for her as for hid treasure, so now we have wisdom being personified, thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Okay. <clears throat> For the Lord gives wisdom out of his mouth, cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. Where does wisdom originate? For the Lord, verse 6, gives wisdom out of his mouth. That's where wisdom comes from. That's where we obtain it. Now, wisdom is foundational. Let's look in Proverbs chapter 4. Verses five through seven, he says, get wisdom. 
Get understanding. Forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principle or the foundational thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. We are to pursue wisdom, the knowledge of God and the, the ability to apply it, to understand it rightly, that approved workman who is not ashamed because he is rightly dividing the word. Wisdom is foundational. The fear of God is the, is the root of wisdom. And you read this in Proverbs chapter 1, but we're going to go to Proverbs chapter 9, where we also find it. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. If we want to know what wisdom and, and understanding is, it's rooted there in who God is and in his nature. There's a division, if you will, amongst scholars, uh, mostly those philosopher kind of guys, and they say, well, listen, we should study more the doctrine of man, what man is like, what are his foundational uh, tenets and, and characteristics, those things that are there, so that we might understand ourselves better, so that we might have a better and maybe a more consistent uh, interpretation of our own predilections and, 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 and those kinds of things. And then on the other side of that, you have those who say, no, we need to study who God is. And in a proper understanding of who God is, of his nature, of his characteristics, we will have a proper understanding of who man is. I tend to fall in the second camp, study God. I mean, first, we have to realize we're made in his image. If I want to know what I should be like, in some respects, not that we attain godhood or anything uh, heretical like that. I'm reflecting God. I am made in his image. I am his image bearer. And so are you. And so is every other person that's ever been born on this earth. But who God is, his characteristics and his nature reveals in us either the good characteristics that we may hold and have a better understanding of what they are or reveals in us a lack of those characteristics and gives us clarification of our sinfulness and our desperate need for Christ. Wisdom, that knowledge and application, should be characteristic of believers. And in addition to that, it should be clear that it's not worldly wisdom. Sometimes the two are one and the same. Sometimes they are. Sometimes the world has caught on that these principles are correct. And probably for me, the easiest way to illustrate that is through financial things, right? There are good principles from Scripture that work, and therefore they've been grabbed onto. And if you're going to receive, you know, sure financial advice and how you deal with finances and those kinds of things, it kind of all sounds the same because it has a common source, whether it's acknowledged or not. It's coming from the Word of God. 
But when we are taking the Word of God and we begin to put it into application, we take the knowledge of what God has said and we say, this is how this affects that part of my life, or this is how it interacts with that part of your life, as we have opportunity to give counsel or to visit with folks and share the gospel and just interact with people, it should be something clearly different. We should be able to articulate it, not from a worldly standpoint, but from a standpoint that this is what God has said. Why does it work? Because the creator of the universe has said this is the way it is. It is revealed truth. Let's look at a few scriptures here. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The reason I go to this verse is because it gives us the indication that God's wisdom, his understanding, his ways are vastly superior to ours. And it talks about them in regard to depth. How deep, how unsearchable, how unfathomable are they? Above and beyond what we could comprehend or understand. As it says in Isaiah, his ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens is above the earth, so are his ways higher than ours. It's the same idea. There should be a clear distinction and a clear understanding, a picture, a difference between the two, that this is what God has said, and this is worldly wisdom. They should be distinguishable. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. says, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. There is a something here to be said, the right, that we as those uh, believers should be growing in understanding of the Word of God, in, in understanding of His ways, and understanding of His character and nature, those things which He has revealed to us. Everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the Word of righteousness, for He is a babe. But strong meat, so there's this progression hinted at, implied, and in regard to our physical growth, we don't come out desiring meat. We come out desiring milk, that which God has provided. And as we grow, our needs change, and the sustenance that we need increases. Even those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. There's the implication here that there is some study, some effort, if you will, that we're going to put forth to grow in those things. We're going to participate in that growth, just as Daniel was characterized by his growth in wisdom, by his communion and study of the truth of God. So too, we will grow as we 
commune with the Lord and as we study the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just because it's wisdom doesn't mean that it isn't simple. Just because it's simple or just because it's base or or comprehensible doesn't mean that it is somehow less wisdom, less wise than something that isn't. There tends to be a perception that the more complicated something is, the better that it is. Yet, Scripture would give us a different indication. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's read verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Just consider that for a moment, right? That If God's ways, if his wisdom is, is deep and unfathomable, we can't get to the bottom of it. It's inexhaustible then his wisdom makes the wisdom and the understanding of the world look as if it were nothing. That's the point that's being made. For after that, verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to say to save them that believe. Okay, so here is God and he's exercised his wisdom. He's spoken everything into existence perfectly so. Man corrupts it, but he's in that creation made witness of himself. The heavens declare his glory and the firmament his handiwork. And he says, now it pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, by the simplicity of the preaching. The message is simple. It isn't something complex. It isn't something that we have to, you know, balance and we'll consider this thing over here and consider that thing over there. No, it's a very simple message. The wisdom of God, unfathomable, unfathomable as it is, is simple. And he says, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. That is the message. That is the wisdom of God in its very simplest form. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block because it's simple. Consider as we, as we're reading in, uh, in Jesus Unmasked, and we're looking at the, the rules regarding the Sabbath, right? We have the mission of this oral tradition that's finally written down and all these rules and laws surrounding those things. It was complicated, right? We were just as we were looking at the Sabbath this morning, there's 613 rules in the Mishnah regarding the Sabbath. Some of them as ridiculous as don't drag your chair across the floor because that might make a furrow in the dust, which is tantamount to farming, which is clearly work, and we don't work on the Sabbath. Right? Jesus would condemn the Pharisees. He would say, listen, you've made the law of God of no effect. The simplicity, the wisdom of God has no effect upon you. It's a stumbling block. It's something you trip over because of your traditions, because of those things that you're trying to live by that were never intended to be there the simplicity of God's wisdom. And unto the, Jew, unto the Greeks, he says, foolishness. It's foolishness to them. It's too simple. 
It's that which we're looking for some significance, some, some philosophical thing that we have to wrestle and grapple with. But in the simplicity of the gospel, Jesus says, it is finished. And he sits down at the right hand of God and he says, all who would believe, as many as believe in me, to them gave I the power to become the sons of God. Verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised, God has chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh may glory in his presence. That no flesh would glory in his presence. Right, consider those three, the, 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 the complete neophyte, the guy who knows nothing but thinks he knows something, the student that's growing into scholarship and the expert. When we look at that, we, we, we see that no flesh would glory in his presence. And we have over here this guy who is confident. He doesn't know what he doesn't know, so therefore I know everything about this. And he's puffed up. He's proud. Look at me. I understand this. And then you have the expert over here, and all he knows is that there's probably yet more to discover. I may have written the book on it, but I'm not done studying it. No flesh glories in his presence. And as we grow into the experts, as we become those who grab onto and 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 are molded and changed and shaped into the image of Christ by the wisdom that we encounter in his word. And we begin to put that into practice and apply it in our lives and in the conversations and the lives of others. We give glory to God as a result because we know that this is something outside of myself. This is something greater than I could have ever understood or conceived of. This is something beyond. We have no room to glory in ourselves. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. It begins with the question, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? And it's a rhetorical question. He gives the answer, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Meekness, that I am the expert, yet I'm not going to boast in my expertise. The meekness of wisdom. Let him show his knowledge. Let him show his wisdom by the way he conducts himself. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. 
But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. There are two very different circumstances and characteristics, set of circumstances, characteristics, excuse me, two very different sets of characteristics of earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. One seeks its own, is earthly, it's sensual, and it's devilish. We manifest this sometimes when we seek vengeance, when we, when we say, look at that thing over there, and we, we take up uh, partiality against it. We're somehow, I'm going to get even or whatever it may be, and it's all too easy to fall into, but that's the kind of wisdom that the world would impart. You are justified in doing X, Y, or Z because of what they did to you. Yet what do we read about the characteristics of godly wisdom, the wisdom that is from above? It is pure, it's peaceful, it's gentle, it's easy to be entreated. That means that you can make appeal to it, you can interact with it. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's without partiality, without hypocrisy. Different characteristics. The thing is this, right? The, the wisdom of God isn't for an elite few. It isn't for the Daniels. It isn't for just those guys that God would supernaturally inject with wisdom and the ability to interpret dreams and visions. It's for everyone. God has told us to pursue it. God has said, listen, this is something that you should go after. It's, it's more, worth more than gold and silver. And because it comes from God, because it originates with Him, James writes in James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, if we lack it, if we have an area in our life where we don't understand, we don't, we, don't, we don't have full comprehension and the ability to apply the truths of God's word, there's something there. He says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally. It isn't something that God is giving in measure. It's something that he is giving liberally above and beyond. And he upbraids not. He's not getting after us for, about it, having some area in our lives where we're not understanding something. And it says, and it shall be given him. This is something that God desires to impart to us. This is something that God wants us to be, to be equipped in. And he's provided and thoroughly provided for it. Daniel was known for the wisdom that he exhibited. And his wisdom was recognizable as something outside of himself, something above and beyond normal worldly wisdom. It says in verse 11, as it talks about him, it says that there is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. Right? He, and he was put in charge of, every, of all those people who would impart wisdom. But here's the thing. Daniel was, rec excuse me, was recognized 
for exercising the calling that God had given him. He was recognized for operating within his calling. Okay, Daniel 1.17 would tell us that God, <clears throat> that God imparted to them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. So he's operating in his calling. That's what God especially uh, gave him here. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 49, it says, Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. The result of him exercising his gift is that he's established into an office of counselor to the king. I mean, that, he's waiting at the king's gate. He's just there at his beck and call. Whenever Nebuchadnezzar calls, Daniel is available. He's operating within his calling. And then as we get into chapter 4, verse 9, and Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, right? Master, we read magician and we think of, you know, the illusionists on television and things like that. This, that's not what this means. Master of those who are taking uh, their understanding of the world around them and putting it into practice and using it as a means of interpreting uh, things that are going on and giving wise counsel. That's what it means. So here's Daniel, Belteshazzar, his Babylonian name, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing of the wisdom that he's received, and no secret troubles thee. Tell me the visions of my dream. Daniel is operating in that. That's how the queen that we are reading about here understood and knew and interacted with Daniel, which is that trusted, wise advisor to Nebuchadnezzar. He was operating in his calling. In that which God had clearly given him. And what was the end result? That God was glorified. God was honored. Turn me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 24. Now, Paul is here writing, and he says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister. This is the call that God has given Daniel. Remember when he, excuse me, Paul, when he was Saul and he was on the road to Damascus, he saw, you're going to be my guy to the Gentiles. You're going to take the message of the gospel to the world outside of Judaism. That was, his, that was his call. He's made a minister of the gospel according to the dispensation or the calling, the decree of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor. Paul says, this is my calling. This is the ministry that God has given me. This is what he has told me to be about. This is the business of my father as it relates to me. 
And he says, I'm engaged in it. I'm doing that thing. And he talks about that being something that is for them. God, Paul understands it through him and the exercise of the calling and the dispensation, the decree of God to be the messenger to the Gentiles, that they were benefiting, that this was God's outreach, as it were, to a lost and dying world outside of Israel, and specifically so, and with great impact. I labor, I engage, I work regularly in the calling that you've given me, striving according to his working, according to his call, which works in me mightily. What was Paul's, what was the effect that Paul had because he operated in his calling and the thing that God had called him and gifted him and prepared him for? Success. Paul was successful in the things that God had called him to, just as Daniel was successful as he operated in the calling that he had been given. Not for their own glory, not for their own uh, benefit, but for the glory and the knowledge and the exaltation of he who had called them for the furtherance of his kingdom. In Romans chapter 9, verse 17, it's talking about Pharaoh. And as, we, and as Paul writes there, he says, listen, that even Pharaoh was brought up to a position, raised to the, be the, the, the king of Egypt, so that God's glory may be known. Even the calling of God upon his enemies brings about the same fruit, his glory and his honor. Now, here's the thing. You and I, uh, we know we've all been giving callings. We all have something that God has said, this is what I want you to do. We are, we are his workmanship created into Christ Jesus unto good works, which is before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. There are those things that we are to be engaged in. And I don't know exactly what that may be for you or what that may be uh, for your kids or your, your parents. or That's between them and the Lord. They've got to figure that out on their own. You have to figure that out on your own. Good news is that if we lack wisdom, God says, listen, I'm going to give you understanding. I'll, I'll give that to you. But here's the thing, we need to engage, just as Paul did, just as Daniel did, at a very consistent and diligent level in the calling that God has given us. And he's probably given us more than one specific thing to be doing. And I know we've talked a lot about this in the past. This is something that we have discussed before. But nonetheless, it's true. That we can bring God more glory, we can honor Him furthest as we operate within the dispensation, the decree of God in your life and in my life. As we exercise the talents and the skills and the abilities and all of those things that He has granted you and I, the grace that God has given you and me for His glory. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that God is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. As Paul was commissioned and sent out so that God may be made known and the Gentile world may come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
therefore being forgiven and reconciled to their creator, just as Daniel was used in Babylon to bring about an understanding of who God was and his glory, his sovereignty, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been committed by Jesus Christ, commissioned rather, to go out and to share the gospel. Right, here's a memory verse from last week. Matthew 28, was that last week? I think it was last. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Tells us to go you therefore into all the nations. And while we're there, we're making disciples specifically. We're teaching them to obey whatsoever he's commanded. As we operate in the calling of God, and we know it's the calling of God. How do I know? Because Jesus told us to do it. For believers, it is the consistent thing that we are to be engaged in. And ultimately, the gifts, the abilities, the strengths, the talents, whatever they are, the graces that God has imparted to you and I, ultimately work to that end. That he is known and that people might trust in Christ. We may reap benefit and reward as a result of that, because that's building with gold and silver and precious stones upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are to make God known, we are to train disciples, and we are to walk in obedience to our King. In our calling, in those things that God has called us to, Someone may ask, what, how do you find your calling? I'll just tell you this, that Jesus said, if you are faithful in the small things, I'll give you greater things. Start with consistent engagement on behalf of Christ to the lost world around us, sharing the gospel, participating in the Great Commission. Start there in the small thing that you know you should be doing. And I'm convinced that the more we engage there, the clearer our gifts, our talents, all of those things that God has given us, the specific calling that he's given you will become clearer and clearer as a result. Faithful in the small things. Back to Daniel chapter 5. <clears throat> The queen suggests to Belteshazzar, she says, listen, if this guy is here, you ought to call him and he can give you the interpretation of what's been written on the wall. Verse 13, then was Daniel brought in before the king and the king spake and said unto him, Daniel, art thou that Daniel, the same Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought out of Jewry or out of Israel? I have even heard of thee, this, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. In, in, in a generation, right, if, if, Bel, if Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, so in a generation, we come from what we read at the end of chapter 4. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, and he's learned his lesson as he's out, with the beast, without his reason, as it says in Scripture, says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven. 
All whose works are truth in his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. There's an acknowledgement of his sovereignty, of who he is. And he says, I honor and extol him. He is the one that I want to point people toward. Not for my glory, not for, not for my temple. Babylon is not really mine. It's his. All the way to, to where we read in verse 14 that here is Belshazzar and he's unfamiliar. He doesn't even really know who Daniel is. How far the family of Nebuchadnezzar and, and ultimately Babylon had removed themselves from any consideration of who the true God is. Matthew chapter 9. Uh, verses 37 and 38, Matthew 9, 37, says, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, and the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. In a generation, you went from a king who was pointing people toward the living God, to not even to a king who doesn't even know who he is. The harvest, even if it was completely reaped over here, is in a generation ready to be harvested again. The work isn't finished. In Romans 1:18, it talks about them suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That here it is, that the natural tendency of mankind is not as undesirous to retain the knowledge of who God is, their sinfulness and their need for reconciliation. And so they take the truth that God has revealed in his creation throughout his word, and they suppress it. They hold it down. They're unacknowledging of the truth that is before them. That is man's natural tendency. When Nebuchadnezzar died without anybody taking up the mantle, there was this slide back to a very pagan state. And it doesn't matter if it's Babylon or America or your family or our own hearts. This is something that we've got to be careful of. We don't slide back to our natural tendency. In John chapter 3, verse 18, and I should be able to quote that before, but I've drawn a blank. It says, He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here, here we stand and we see the world around us and their existence is that of condemnation. They are in condemnation. They are declared by God to be enemies, to be sinners. That is where they exist. That is their natural tendency. That is our natural estate, if, if I can use that term.
and they hide from the light. They don't want to be exposed by it. And Jesus addresses that. But here's the thing for you and I as believers, this should be our natural tendency. Verse 21 of John chapter three, he that does, he that doeth truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. There should be on our part, a desire to be in the light of God in his, in his exposing will. That whatever is within us, whether it's good or bad, is brought and recognized for what it is. That should be our natural tendency. Lord, is this a spirit of pride? Is this something that has crept up in me? Father, is there things that I am neglecting that I should be operating in because this is the calling you have given me? In 1 John chapter 1, First John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that is where people exist. That is those who are suppressing the truth and righteousness. The truth is not in them. I don't want to acknowledge my sin. I'm a good person. If we confess our sins, though, right? And so the confession is not only that we have sin, but this is what the sin is. Lord, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In just a generation, we go from confessing the sin of pride and extolling the creator of the universe to who are you? Worshiping pagan gods, worshiping false gods, defiling the instruments of the temple. A return back to the natural estate, if you will. Belshazzar asked Daniel to interpret the dream or, or the writing on the wall. Excuse me. He, he asked him to, what does it say? What does it mean? And Daniel begins his answer in verse 17. Daniel answered before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself and thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known unto him the inter interpretation. Right. Remember the Belshazzar said, listen, whoever can interpret this, whoever can tell me what it means will be made third in the kingdom. You're going to receive reward and, and honor and a position of status. Third in the kingdom. Second only to the king and Nabonidus and Belshazzar, his son, the reigning crown prince. Right. So, so Daniel, you'll be rewarded heavily if you can answer and tell me what this means. And Daniel says, listen, I'm not working for you. I'm working for the Lord. Keep your rewards. This is what God has called me to do. This is what he has specifically empowered me uh, by his spirit to be able to do, to interpret dreams and visions. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it for his glory, for his honor, not for your reward. Daniel worked for the king, or excuse me, worked for the God, not for the king. He had no interest in reward, and he sought, not the, sought the kingdom of God 
first. And as he continues on, he declares sentence, right? This is the sentence. This is the judgment against this blasphemer, Belshazzar, who has desecrated the items taken from the temple, who has used them in pagan worship and defamed the living God. He says in verse 18, O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. By the way, several times here, Belshazzar is called the son, or, or Nebuchadnezzar is called his father. And don't get caught up on that. It's, it's very consistent throughout scripture, right? All it means is that he is a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. That's all it means. We find it even, where did, da where did David go to sleep? With his fathers. His grandfather, his dad, all of the kings before, that, that, or, or that, that's where he went. Okay? That, that's the same thing's happening. It's a generational phrase. So don't get caught up on it. There are those who will nitpick it. Well, we know that this is who it was. And so historically, we know here's the scripture. It's inaccurate. They're cherry picking. Don't get hung up on it. And for the majesty, verse 19, that he gave him, that God gave majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, all people, nations, languages, trembled and feared before him, whom he would he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would set up, and whom he would, he put down. Okay, who is killing and, and, and setting up and taking down? It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, it was God. And he says, listen, Nebuchadnezzar was established by God. He was his person. This is what it's verse 20. But when his heart, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up, and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, right? There he was out in the wilderness, out, out there like a beast, eating the grass. His fingernails grew out like claws. His hair grew out long like feathers. And he was there for as long as he was there until he learned the lesson. Until he acknowledged, until he left his heart and pride And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. And this, and thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all of this. Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar, like his grandpa, had fallen to the sin of pride. He'd fallen to the sin of pride. <clears throat> like I said, he desecrated the temple, the instruments, defamed God, all of those things. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is there at the necropolis in Rome. He's, he's up there, and he sees all of these idols. And as he walks through these idols, he sees an idol with the, with the term over, with the, the sign over it saying, this is the idol to the unknown God. And as he begins to talk about that with those who were there in audience, this is what he says, beginning verse 24. <clears throat> God that made the world and all things therein, 
seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. Listen, you've got this idol made to this unknown God, but this is the God I want to talk to you about, and he is the creator of everything, and he doesn't dwell here. He's not living here in this little idol or in temples made with hands. Neither, he says, is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. See, he gives to all life and breath and all things. God is sufficient in himself. He's not needy. He wasn't needy for the sacrifices even that he prescribed in the Old Testament. And, and so all of these idols that are out there on the necropolis, as Paul is walking through, they would have offerings brought and laid there. It happens today in other countries, right in, uh, I think it's India, I might be wrong. They have the temple and it's full of rats. And it's part of their deity, right? It's one of their deity. And so they come and they bring all these offerings and just millions and millions of rats. And there's people bringing food all the time and just all kinds of things. It's their offering. Their God is needy that it would be provided for. And what kind of a God is that? Well, it's not a God at all. And that's what Paul is saying. He's referring to God as sufficient and self-sustaining in himself. It's not worshipped with those things. And he's made of one blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Okay, God made man. He established him. And not only that, but he is in charge of time and he has appointed all those things to happen. And they're going to happen when they're supposed to happen. It says that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Right? As God has set the bounds not only on time, but upon people and where they, where they live. Right? Think all the way back to the Tower of Babel. As God confused the languages and people would disperse as a result of that. God established bounds where they would go, where they would end up, even by his sovereign and providential decrees came to pass when people ended up. But that God should seek, but that they should seek the Lord. God has revealed himself to all of mankind, not just a particular people group or not just a particular language, but to all mankind. And he's near them. And it says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your one poet said, for we also are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. Because we are the offspring, in other words, not that all mankind are the offspring of God because we're adopted into his family, but because we are made in his image, because we are made to desire him and to somehow reconcile and fellowship with him that is part of what is within us as a result of that we ought not to fall into worship of these other things and these things that are listed here they're same things that they're worshiping the belshazzar and his concubines and wives as they drink from these basins that are taken from the temple are worshiping and praising 
that they would worship the things that are created, not the things, not, not he who created them. We read about that in Romans chapter 1. They worship the, the, the creation rather than the creator. We have Nebuchadnezzar doing that uh, as he celebrates and says, look at this. I'm, this is the temple, Babylon. This beautiful city is the temple unto my majesty there in chapter 4. And here's Belshazzar doing the same thing, worshiping the, cre- the creature rather than the creator. And as Daniel introduces this, as he's about to make his uh, reading of the writing on the wall, he introduces it with this, listen, Belshazzar, you should have known. You knew. You should have humbled yourself. You should have, this is not unfamiliar to you, but it is the predilection, it is the desire of man. We get down to the interpretation of Daniel reading this in in verse 25. It says, this is the writing that is written. And I'm going to butcher all of these words because I don't speak Aramaic. Um, I don't speak Hebrew. He says, mean, mean, tekel, eupharsin. Okay, we have three words. That's all that was written. Just three words written by this hand on the wall. He says, this is the interpretation of the thing. Mean, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Okay, mean, mean. Here, this is the number of it. This is the end of it. He's numbered your kingdom. He's established it. It's a reference to the sovereignty of God, to his providence in bringing about the rise and the fall of the kings of men to bring about his glory and honor and make himself known. Here it is. Babylon, you're finished. Belshazzar in particular, but it's Babylon completely as a bigger kingdom, as an empire. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Belshazzar was unrepented. Do you remember when Jonah went into Nineveh and he brought the message of, of, uh, of judgment coming? And the king of Nineveh said, listen, we're going to repent. We're all going to abase ourselves, sackcloth and ashes, even on your livestock. Peradventure, just in case God will forgive us for the sins that we've committed. And he did. He dealt with them in mercy as a result. He extended grace to them because they turned and they repented. Here's Belshazzar. He should have known better. He would he, he Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had experienced it firsthand and had taken the time to carefully write out and say, I extol, I praise, I honor the God of heaven. Who's able to bring even kings, even emperors down low to abase them, to bring the proud low. And Belshazzar, I'm sure, heard his grandfather saying the same things. He knew and he chose not to. He exalted himself. He worshiped the false gods. He, not only that, but he took the things designed and intended for the worship of the living God, and he defiled them. And he used them to worship and to celebrate pagan gods, false deities. You are measured and you are found wanting. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. And it's in this chapter where we read about building on the foundation of Christ in our lives. And that there's no other foundation that we can build on. And we need to take heed how we build, whether we build with consumable things and whether we build with those enduring things. And it's all revealed in the fire at the end. And it's not a reference to our salvation. It makes that very clear in that passage. But it is a reference to reward and loss, those things, to honoring the Lord or to dishonoring the Lord. And the choice is before us. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest. It will be declared. It will be exposed. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Even for you and I as believers, there's going to be a revelation of what our life, how it reflected Christ, what we did with it. And just like Belshazzar knew, we know. We are without excuse. Now, we're not talking, as I said, we're not talking about salvation or loss of salvation. It's not what's being referenced. But when we come to the other side of this life, into the next life, and we're faced with, with Jesus Christ and the joy and the, the honor that we're going to experience there, and I'm convinced that in some sense there's going to be some remorse and just because I knew better and I didn't. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Hebrews 4, 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto him, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We're not getting away with anything. God already knows. And not only does he know what we do on the outside, he knows where our heart is on the inside. Here's Belshazzar. He's been measured and he's found wanting. He's unrepentant. He hasn't turned. Even though he knew, he didn't do. Then it says Perez, which is, uh, and I know that when verse 25, it's a different word. It's from the same root. It's really the same, but like one is, it has to do with uh, case, word case, uh, but it's the same word. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It's the end of an era. Babylon is falling. And if you go look at Isaiah 13, Isaiah 21, Isaiah 45, all of those are chapters regarding the fall of Babylon. And prophetically so, with great specificity, even naming Cyrus, who was yet to be born when it was written. And if he was born, he was young, he was unknown. But here it is. The end of that era. The end of that time period where Babylon was going to be God's instrument of correction on his people. They're going to be in captivity longer. It's given to the Medes and the Persians, and they don't leave until later, but it's, it's getting close.
In that night, verse 30, in that night, the very night that all of this happens was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. This was it. This was the final night. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. God said, this is the end of it. It's been going to be divided. And it happened that very night. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you, Lord, for your word. We thank you uh, for the wisdom that you impart to us in your word. And God, I praise you that by your spirit and uh, you will lead us in truth. You'll reprove us of truth and righteousness and of judgment. That we might be able to rightly divide your word. That we might be able to be those who apply wisdom effectively and clearly. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored by each one of us as we endeavor to follow you, as we endeavor to make you known. And Lord, if you look at the life, as we look at Belshazzar and we look at the things that were there, Lord, I, help, I pray that by your grace, we would be those uh, who, even though that know and do, that we wouldn't be just hearers of your word, Lord, but that we would be doers of your word as well. That we would be repentant, that we would be acknowledging of the sin that is within us, perhaps, Lord, that we would acknowledge even those things that are, that are good in us, Lord, that they are the result and the fruit of being in communion with you. We thank you, Lord, for that communion, for that relationship, for that restoration and rest that we enjoy through faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. God, as we worship this morning, as we sing praise and adoration to who you are and for all that you've done, Lord, I pray that you would receive it as the offering of our lips. And Lord, may, the, may our hearts be yielded and submitted to you as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.